0: Welcome to Dialogue on Teaching, Wabash Center's podcast series. I am Nancy Lynn Westfield, Director of the Wabash Center. Paul Utterback is our sound engineer. It is my pleasure to welcome to the conversation Dr. Samantha L. Miller. Dr. Miller is Assistant Professor of Theology, Whitworth University in Spokane, Washington. Welcome, Samantha, to the program. Thank you for being here. Thanks. Thanks for having me. So we want to talk about um, play and playfulness and being lighthearted and in the classroom, and the fact that a playful classroom and, and learning activities that are play likely promote more learning than most other things. But let's just start, start with the basics. When you say play in the classroom, what are you talking about?
1: Oh, I mean, I actually mean several things. So it's that lightheartedness for sure. Um, I mean, on the first day of class, in order to, instead of the like, learn, go around, say your names and then fill out an index card so I get to know you, um, I play a game called group juggle where we throw stress balls at each other and we learn our names in this group juggle game. But also it means they're laughing because one of those stress balls is shaped like a cow and it doesn't fly very well. And so they're dropping it all over the place and they're starting to laugh with each other. And so it's it's actually building the community from the first five minutes of class. And that building community is also part of the play. Um, I mean, things like sometimes we roll dice to see if we're going to pl- have a quiz that day, a reading quiz, which they have the questions for in advance. So they can be as prepared as they want, but I don't have to grade them all. But also it's playful. Um, there's, a, there's a sort of, there's a tone to a lightness of tone to it. Um, I mean, sometimes we put the devil on trial in my class in order to help read a particular text. Um, But I also mean, I spend almost every class completely in small group discussions with facilitation and and breaks in between for exposition and and everything, but because they're playing with ideas too, or I have papers where I want them to play with the ideas and figure out what they think. so because play can be a serious business. I mean, we think about sports as play, but also as really serious. I mean, once well, certainly certainly if you've ever watched professional sports, um, but to think about play in in just all of these different kinds of of ways, um, not just the not just playing games or coming up with jeopardy questions for review, but but the way I run a classroom as a space of i've been I've been working on the theory of it helps students drop their guard. I've got a professional storyteller friend who says stories get past the bouncer in the brain. And I think play does a, a really similar thing. As soon as I start lecturing, they might be taking notes, but they're not, they're not taking it in in the same way as when we start playing with ideas or we start um, tossing around ideas from one person to another and disagreements and wrestling out what we think. Um, and so various ways that I can create that sense in the classroom.
0: So sports helps us get inside of this. Um, as something for adults. But I can hear many people saying, I I teach adults, I don't teach children, and play is for children. Like, how do you, what do you say to people? Because clearly, I don't believe that, right? I think play is for everybody. Um, But how do you, how do you help colleagues who say, I teach adults, I am an adult, I don't have time for play? Yeah, so I teach undergraduates
1: primarily, and I do have non-traditional age undergraduates occasionally in my classes who seem to find this a delightfully refreshing way of learning. Um, if any, if anything, that's that's the way in is that it's refreshing, and it's it's. Um, I do think there's something that students feel like they're getting away with something when I do this, even the adult students, even even. I mean, my undergraduates are adults, but we also know they're 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 growing into their adulthood at the same time, and so for them. They love the chance to be allowed to be kids again, because what they desperately want is to be children and be taken care of as they're being told you have to be an adult and you have to start taking on these responsibilities. And so to give them a space where they feel that kind of safety of being a kid again actually opens them up to be able to learn. They're not as resistant to the learning. And I would say to maybe those who have uh, sort of solely adult learners or or not undergraduate, traditional undergrad age learners, Probably a similar thing that there is something that it taps into in us that just provides a space to grow into it, and you do have to do a lot of framing in the in the beginning with with adults and just say, "Look, I tell them, I tell my students the first day, you're just going to embrace embrace the absurdity in my class, and it will go better. And as soon as you can get them laughing, even a little bit, it starts to crack that open, and it really does. Play creates community, um, which is a huge part, and then also in terms of theology, play is about imagination. And if imagination is about seeing the invisible, then I would say theology is also about imagination. And so there might be a natural connection there to say, well, you have to play with ideas and, and it doesn't have to be silliness. It can be this discussion as well as a play, but it's about tossing things around. It's about the images, the metaphors of play, as much as anything, would be a, a way in to start and to see what happens and see, do the students open up? Are they more able to engage um, without self-consciousness? Because that's, I think, what drops out when we play as well. So I think those are the where I would start with that conversation. But thankfully, I don't get it very often from colleagues because of the kind of school I'm at and that I think they see me teaching outdoors anyway and they're all like, "It's it's working, so.
0: The times that I've used play in the classroom, which is a lot, um, I'm just going to say back my own experience about what you just described, it has lowered self-consciousness and raised curiosity, mm-hmm. right? So people are inhibited about saying what they're curious about or what, what their real questions are and not their, their prefabricated questions or their churchy questions or their questions that aren't really questions. So I used to use play as a way to get try to get inside their own curiosity to make it make them able able to let their own curiosity out.
1: Yeah. Oh, absolutely. Um, it it uh, yeah. It's that that lowered inhibition to be able to be curious to get out of their own way. I just had a class last week. We were headed into fall break and energy was all over the place. And they'd been in eight weeks or so with me and we got talking about the reformation and so then they started asking okay but but this difference in thinking about salvation like someone just said i can i just ask what salvation is or what this concept is in in a my university is is a christian university where students don't have to be christian to come and so i've got a range of backgrounds but often the non christian students in a in a theology class will feel like everyone else already knows the answers and so they're not willing to ask those questions but I, we got to a place where they were curious enough and and playful enough with each other that they felt they could trust each other to actually just ask, what do we mean by this? What do you mean by this? And they had a fantastic discussion for an hour. We didn't get to the material, but that was fine.
0: So students are able, instead of uh, take risks, they, play helps them take risks. Mm-hmm. But it also, to me, which is more important, they can share the risk. Right. Yeah. So it's not nearly as scary if I know the community is sharing the risk taking with me versus me just doing kind of, you know, cowabunga jumping off of something, hoping I don't die. Right. <laughs> that play um, encourages them to say that we are risking together.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Um, in the best ways, when a group presentation works the way it should, that's what it's doing. Right. Is that I don't ever have one person present because it's really intimidating and that risk is too high. Because it's so low risk, but the risk feels so much lower when there's five other people in front with them, um, especially when I'm asking them to do things like draw on the board or act out the story or come up with a game or come up with a creative way to tell the story of the life of Antony. And I got five different versions that all represented their groups differently, but they felt they were in it together and could risk. Um, and it creates a sort of risk assessment, uh, skills of risk assessment play will. Um, so it's not just teaching to risk, but knowing. How to read a situation? And go. Oh no, this one is an acceptable risk. I can I can try that here because it's okay.
0: Or nope, that one's probably going to hurt. Um, and
1: they can help each other with that figuring with that discernment
0: as well. So Samantha, how did you develop this approach? Right? Why this approach? And why did you like double down on it? If I can use that use that term and say this is this is my approach to my teaching.
1: Yeah, it's it's actually been a really recent thing that I've even been able to reflect in these terms on it. That it this is part partly I've doing that because I'm I'm going through a review process and writing my statement of teaching again and all that. But it it started because every all the most important things I learned about teaching I learned from working at a, at a summer camp, which I did all the way through seminary and grad school, or at least until I had to write the dissertation. And I was a wilderness guide, but working at a camp, learning. Learning the skills of reading a group, being flexible, how to pace, how to like, I learned how to pace a class and how much information to give by watching people put up tents when I was giving bad information. And I learned very quickly how to do it better. But the big thing that I learned was watching kids play and watching seniors who've just graduated and know they're headed out to be adults play one last time and get this sense of freedom in that, and a freedom that opens them to the world and to each other, which is, seems like a great way to learn and a, and a place to learn. And so, certainly, a lot of the tricks that I use, the the, the draw the story or the um, what if we acted this out or those sorts of things for the lessons, come from that same back pocket from guiding. But but the theory of it has been as I de- as, just as I teach, it, it sort of was natural, an outgrowth of. I teach best when I'm sitting on the grass with a group of students just chatting about ideas um, or playing a game because I love watching them laugh and and become themselves and become less self-conscious. And then as I reflect on what's happening, I'm able to really figure out, oh, it's about this playfulness. And now I'm being more intentional as well
0: about this. So there's a trend um, in pedagogy to do um, holistic teaching, body, mind, and spirit teaching and somehow people have separated body, mind, and spirit teaching away from play, which I think is absurd, right? So when I hear you talking about how you discovered your own approach or leaned into your own approach at a camp, but incorporated it into your undergraduate courses, that that incorporating body, mind, and spirit together makes complete sense under play or as play as an approach.
1: Oh, yeah. I didn't realize they were separating them. That doesn't even make, that just does not make sense to me. Um... Because that, so I'm also a no technology classroom. Um, it's a, they, they're not allowed to have it. And if I catch them on any, they have to bring baked goods for the whole class. The next class period is the, my non-shameful uh, enforcement of that. But they, which is again, holistic embodied. They love, they love that too. Cause then they get treats all the time, but they, um, <laughs> my classes are known for going outside and baked goods, but they, they're, the no tech allows, the reason I, I tell them it's a no tech class is so that they can be mind, 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 body, and spirit in one place present at one time, which they just don't have spaces for that in their lives. Then no one is ever asking them to just be integrated. And the play comes out of that when they're not then thinking about these other things or the distractions or the who might be texting me or what is my roommate doing. They're able to be so much more present. And the play... Because they are using their bodies. They're up acting something out or they are um, having to think through differently or I'm trying to think of other good examples. But they're they're using their bodies for sure and their minds and their spirits. In my class, I'm trying in a theology class, trying to have them think about what does this mean for their lives, too. And the playfulness can get at that aspect really helpfully, too, is the what if. It's The playfulness can be just a what if. So what if what if your roommate just broke up with someone? What could Abelard and Heloise offer as wisdom? Um, what if this had happened? What if what if what if Anthony were sitting in our classroom right now or or what if half of you are a middle school Sunday school class? What would the other class what would the other half of you say to them to explain this concept? And it just engages so many more aspects of their being and then they flourish because they're brought back into it as their whole selves. And, and also the integration helps them learn. I mean, they, they just retain well.
0: Now, for the dear listeners who are listening to us right now, the no tech classroom sounds like the most radical thing you've said, right? So so many of us might do some play every now and then, but I need to pause for our listeners over the no tech classroom. What the, so do, do you have active resistance to the no tech classroom or how do you navigate a no tech classroom? It's mostly passive resistance,
1: as in my students are so addicted because they're 18 to 22, most of them. They're just so addicted that they don't even know they're doing it half the time. Um, The biggest issue I have is with accommodations. Um, So I'll have students with uh, accommodations through our our Office of uh, Student Support Services who might have some need for it. And even those students usually are pretty good about saying no, actually, I don't need it for this. Or this is the thing I usually use it for. But your classes, sometimes it's my class is structured in a way that they're not trying to take down every word of notes anyway, and so they don't feel like they need it. Um, I've occasionally had students with motor issues, and then and then absolutely, and they use their laptop and they just sit at the at ed- one of the edges of the room so that it's it's not, but it's also they're using it for the right reasons and the right ways, and they get why we're doing it. Um, yeah, I I don't get a lot of active pushback. I will occasionally get. Uh, Or if a student has a particular issue, so I've got uh, a couple students who are moms right now who just have kids in school and whatever. And they will ask, can I just have it on in silent? And if if the kid's school calls, can I step out? Yeah, of course. Right. Like that's it's not that I'm unreasonable about it. Um, But yeah, for the most part, they get it. And once they start in on it, they see how much it helps. Honestly, actually, the most the most pushback I get is I require them to have hard copies of the reading in class and so many of them are pdfs that they're having to print and we don't give them enough printing money and so it doesn't matter how many times i tell them i've only made you buy two ten dollar books for this class this is your third that just doesn't compute that way for them and that's the biggest pushback i get is i can't get them to bring the reading sometimes but um they also have to be prepared enough for the readings with these potential quizzes that they're they're usually i can usually hold class anyway even if some of them don't have it. And if if we hit, there have been days where I hit a critical mass and no one has it, I will kick them out and, or tell, or I'll make it a quiz point or something and say, you have to bring it next time. But for the most part, I really don't. They really will settle in to not having it quite well. In fact, I'm doing a Jan term. We, we have Jan terms at my university and both of mine are monastic. So one is backpacking and one is um, actually at a monastery and they're no tech for three weeks. They don't have anything and they cannot wait. To give up their phones, so I think, yeah, I think we fear the the resistance. But it, I, my colleagues and I who do this, don't have as much as you might think.
0: Well, and my experience too is, if you get people um, doing role plays and moving around the room and being playful and doing activities, walk away from your own laptop. They don't have any excuses, right? You can't just just hide behind your laptop if you're doing your role play. So part of it is even if you don't have a a completely no tech classroom, which I love the idea of that, um, to do these activities is to not have students who are distracted by the constant barrage of tech pinging and tech tech stuff. Yeah. Or even just the imagined
1: pinging, right? It's like our brains are like golden retrievers. and, And I know that even even now, because my computer is open and I'm staring at the screen, my brain is going, but maybe someone's emailing you. Maybe you're missing something. And so just removing that piece by just having it away is helpful. And I take my students outside a lot. So in terms of my no tech, I don't use very much tech in the classroom. I occasionally show a, a short video clip or something, but for the most part, I don't have anything either. And, and it does just an active classroom enlivens everything and give and, and they understand then why. But yeah, definitely. Even if you need to have it for some reason, move,
0: having an active classroom will help with
1: the issues you're you're wanting from it.
0: I still, uh, the the whole time I taught, even at at the end of my 20 years before I came to the Wabash Center, the handout was the way to go. I had always had physical handouts for my students. Here, touch this piece of paper, read this together. um, To me, which was added a different needed dimension to the classroom instead of just pull this up on the screen or uh, take a look at this email. we, I was so taken with your approach, your approach of play to the classroom. We have asked you to write a blog column. Tell us about your your forthcoming blog column at the Bear Center.
1: Yeah, it's going to be called Wild Pedagogy, mm-hmm. and and um, I had been asked, uh, Lynn had asked me to do this at the at this worked one of the workshops this summer, and it's it comes out of this uh, it comes out of my my background as a wilderness guide teacher. That that's where my teaching all my really important pedagogy comes from. And so I still teach outside and use nature as the classroom and the playfulness and all of that. And so she asked if I would write about this. And so it's, it's how do I take classes outside and why Uh, most importantly, why, but also for people who want some concrete examples, there will be some concrete, this worked or this didn't work. Um, It's it'll, uh, the first one, I don't know when, when it's going to drop, but the first one will be coming. And the first one is why do I do this? Why go outside with it? And and some of it is as simple as because this is how I learned to teach and I feel more like myself as a teacher when I'm outside with students. And some of it is watching students realize they're getting away with something and and then they just open up and can learn differently. Um, or because when fresh air is blowing on your face, you feel more like life feels more possible and then maybe learning feels more possible. So ideas like that sort of introdu- introductory. I'll have some on just practical people often ask me practical questions how do you do this with students with mobility issues or um students don't want to go outside or how do i use powerpoint how should i do this um so some of it will be the like practical the, the answer to that one is just don't don't use PowerPoint. <laughs> I'm <sorry. That's> stupid. <laughs> no. well I, I mean to be fair i'm i'm at a liberal arts university so like in theology i get to say that there are places in in chemistry
0: where you'd maybe just need a diagram but um but that, I mean, I mean, you can't get hand context matters, right? Context matters. Yes. If I'm outside, you're not going to do a PowerPoint because you're outside, right? Right. <laughs> and actually, it makes me
1: a better teacher outside without any of that because I don't even have a whiteboard, although I'm, I'm seriously considering buying a small one for spelling certain words for students. But it does make me think twice about how I repeat things. Do I need to... Um, I'm just a more attentive teacher. What am I saying? And have I said it as clearly as possible so they can get it down, even if I haven't written it on, on something or what do I repeat or what do I need to spell that sort of stuff? So those, those sorts of questions. And then, yeah, just lots of examples of what has worked and why has it worked and what are the, what is my, it's a very much a working theory. It's not a, it's not a final theory, but what is the working theory about why this is good? So when students asked if we could do a class in 10 inches of snow, and I said, you're not going to want to sit in the snow. They said, we'll walk. And so I created a, a reenactment of the Crusades for them. We did an Oregon Trail version with dysentery deaths and all of, of the Crusades <laughs> for an hour and night training camp. And it was fantastic. It's the one that they all remember. And so it's this, how do we just expand the idea of what our classroom is? And and yeah, and so I'll be writing uh, bi-monthly on that.
0: So Wild Pedagogy, the column blog column Wild Pedagogy, um, so, again, similar to what I said earlier, so people, and rightfully so, want to study ecology, want to be about ecology, want ecology to be um, in all things, but they don't want to go outside to teach. <laughs> right? So what I hear, I mean, I hear you um, rectifying or integrating, right, the notion of Understanding of ecology and even ecology in teaching as a teaching approach, not just something we talk about and keep at arm's length, which is wild, wildly exciting to me. Yeah, absolutely. Um,
1: yeah, I mean, how can you teach the creation story in Genesis sitting in a windowless classroom? Sometimes I put up with it because it's February and there's way too much snow on the ground. But if it's But if it's September, we're sitting on the grass to do that. And, and even the students who don't want to, they can sit on the sidewalk or they can stand on the sidewalk or something, but they're, we're going to be outside to talk about creation or anything anything else we're doing. Like it's the, Wendell Berry says the Bible is an outdoor book. So when I'm teaching Bible stuff, let's be outside with it. Let's recognize what the world is about and where God is moving in it. And we need church history. It's embodied. History is about the actions of all the Christians of all the times and all the places. So let's be people and interact with our world and see what we can learn from not just the ideas,
0: but actually thinking about it more holistically, yeah. Matthew Miller, thank you so much for this um, delightful conversation and challenging, right? So I, I mean, I hope our listeners are challenged to look at their syllabi and not, not for their electives, but even for their intro classes, their bread and butter classes and say, how do we incorporate the senses into it? How do we incorporate experience? How do we incorporate going outside and changing context? For, for the creativity and imagination for their students and for their own. To our listeners, the Wabash Center website is the place. Look on our website for details concerning cohort groups, our colloquies, our roundtables, our workshops. Look on our website concerning our educational resources, our blogs, our journal and teaching, our complete archive of podcasts, as well as on our website is our information about our re program. A special thanks to podcast producer Rachel Mills and the music which frames our podcast is the original composition of Paul Myrie. Wabash Center for more than 28 years is exclusively funded by Lilly Endowment Incorporated, and we are How How is that, Paul?